talk about this plan of yours. I think it's good, except it sucks. So let me do the plan, and that way it might be really good. Wow. movie and television series by television series hurtled through the Marvel Cinematic Universe. This time we're stepping outside the Marvel Cinematic Universe and into Sony's Spider-Verse for a look at Morbius. Originally released in April 2022, well there's a little bit of a story there but we'll come back to that. Technically, and we can actually say this for certain for once, it takes place somewhere between Spider-Man Far From Home and Spider-Man No Way Home but, which of no doubt is another thing we're going to come back to, where it was originally supposed to fit is another question entirely. I'm Tim Worthington, and we'll be finding out what I thought of Morbius shortly. Meanwhile, joining me to give his thoughts on Morbius is writer James Kubray-Smith. James, where can people find you? I'm not sure they can. I recently wandered off Twitter because sort of like my desire to aphorise was sort of outflanked by my desire to not be repeatedly beaten around the head with deranged fascist obscenity. <laughs> so I'm not kind of on any social media or anything at the moment. Although my email address is my surname at gmail.com if uh, anybody wishes to contact me. At the moment, I'm in Doctor Who magazine next month, but at the moment I'm, I'm mostly working on spec type things. So there's not a lot to say there at the moment. Okay, so before we go any further, James, what happens in Morbius? Two lifelong friends, Michael Morbius and Lucian Crown, I think his name is, he's got a slightly different name from the comic book character he's based on, have a lifelong degenerative blood disease that can't be cured. But fortunately, Michael is genius, and once they've hit about 40, he manages to cure it. But unfortunately, the cure that he comes up with turns them into sort of pseudo science rather than magic vampires who have to live on human blood and if they don't consume human blood they die this means slightly inexplicably that they fall out and then they fight and lucian who's usually referred to in the film as milo dies in that fight and then morbius flies away and gets involved in an almost entirely inexplicable post-credit scene yes i've got plenty to say about the post-credit scene but james <laughs> how much did you know about morbius before you saw this film little bits and bobs i'm a comics person but I'm historically, I mean, I was born in 1978, so when I was first getting interested in kind of America comics, it was the end of the 80s, and DC was very much ascendant, so I was very much a DC boy, and I didn't really get interested in Marvel's characters until the end of the 90s and the kind of Joe Quesada era of Marvel. So I wasn't, I had this very vague awareness of him being this sort of image-style, murderous, anti-hero character from the early 90s that I'd never actually read anything with him in, and I was aware of him having a a 1970s origin created by Jill Kane and Roy Thomas both of whom you know 
work for DC I'm much more familiar with. And this idea that he kind of bounced from being a villain to an anti-hero in a way a lot of those characters created in the 70s for Marvel did. But I don't think I'd ever read a comic in which he actually starred. Yeah, that is interesting because although Morbius has dipped in and out of the main comics universe for a very long time, in a way, he's a character that's very tied to very specific points in time because as far as I'm aware, he was the first new character introduced after the relaxation of the comics code in 1971 specifically in response to that because there was a statement that horror could be used if it was in tradition the classic horror and the immediate response is great we bring a vampire in so <laughs> I think he first appeared in Spider-Man and obviously kind of a villain but very much an anti-hero what's interesting if you look at the early ones is obviously besides quite a lot of people like Ghost Rider and Anna Hellstrom but also Doctor Strange is very sympathetic to him I think because of the sort of shared details of their origin stories in the sense you know both being medics who ended up with something that they didn't really want albeit through different means but over the years I think mainly following the success of Venom in the 80s he has evolved into more a character that does good by doing bad which I think is what this movie is trying to riff on really yeah and that's a very early 90s comics thing isn't it you know sort of the image era of sort of people with 10 guns and 20 pouches on their costumes and all that sort of thing it's that sort of the violent anti-hero the murderous anti-hero who sort of fights fire with well not even with fire like fights fire with petrol he very much kind of fits into that vibe and that does seem to be what the sony spider-man universe has wound up doing almost by default and the 90s angle is also interesting because that's my well i say it's my one major issue with the whole movie i mean we will come back to the reception to it very definitely later but <laughs> the one thing that really i felt didn't work like unequivocally didn't work was i felt the visual effects now there is constant to this i thought they were deliberately going for a 90s look and the 90s style very like Buffy in places and I wondered if that was deliberately playing on the kind of Angel Spike relationship that Morbius and Hunger as Milo technically is in the comics have always yeah. had but something about them just didn't land didn't work I could see what they were trying to do but it just didn't fit the visuals for some reason to be honest there's very little in the visuals that I really have an issue with I quite like the sort of wispy pseudo bullet time thing I think it's quite a nicely photographed film. It's Oliver Wood who did Face Off and all of the Bourne films. And the way that it's kind of almost black and white, you know, which of the best horror films are. The way the film has almost no colour. I feel that generally most of the special effects seem to fit quite nicely into that milieu for me. I absolutely agree that the vampire kind of transformations is very Buffy the Vampire Slayer, isn't it? It's very 1999. That's entirely fair. I mean, the main reason I think I picked on that was I have been absolutely stunned by the severity of the reaction to just Morbius in general because I'm going to be honest about this I went to see it I didn't go in expecting for a few dollars more I went in expecting <laughs> Jared Leto and Matt Smith trading high camp sort of I'm the best at being vampires pond sort of performances and that's exactly what I got I didn't anticipate it would be up with Avengers Infinity War and it wasn't it's got some problems but the actual just the ferocity of the response to it especially in the context of people really raging on I agree your mileage may vary with Eternals but it is not by anyone's book a bad film and Thor Love and Thunder getting such a kicking I'm not even sure what people want anymore I don't think it needs 26% as an aggregate score on movie review sites <laughs> 
I think it gives you what you want. If what you want is not to have everything done to your specifications or the real sort of I could write your scripts for you know all kind of way. It does it, what it sets out to do. It's interesting because as I like you said, you know, I'm not very familiar with the character. I was probably not going to go and see it because I'm not very familiar with the character and I don't really like Jared Leto as an actor. And I had a couple of hours to kill in a place with three cinemas within walking distance. And I realised that I could just go and see this film using a free ticket from my membership, whichever cinema it was, Everyman or Pitch House, I'm not sure. And it would kill almost exactly the amount of time I had to kill. So I went to see it thinking, if it's absolutely excruciating, I can leave halfway through and have another cup of coffee. And I sat there and thought, this is absolutely fine. I am being entertained. I'm certainly never going to die in a ditch for it. But the idea that it's some kind of crime against cinema or even that it's sort of the worst film with Marvel characters in of the last couple of years, let alone the last couple of decades, just sort of strikes me as a bit nuts, really. I mean, I think it's a measure of how spoiled we are with comic book films and so on generally that it's attracted such derision you know sort of i remember when we used to go and see films like predator 2 and pronounce them to be perfectly good you know i mean i do think that if morbius had come out six months after the original blade we would have sort of declared that we were in the golden age of vampire based comic book movies and everything we'd watch for the next 10 years would have been a vampire based comic book movie yeah it's extraordinary that it's sort of so dunked on and i do wonder is it leto being quite dislikable as an actor even though I don't think there's anything wrong with what he does in the film, it's not particularly great, but it's, you know, it's not massively distracting and decentering in the way that his Joker is. Is it that the Marvel slash MCU slash comic book films generally thing has got so big that people want to dunk on one and this was safe to dunk on because it wasn't really Marvel and it wasn't really MCU? All conversations about this film eventually kind of crash into the post credit scene. And I do sort of wonder if the two mid credit scenes, rather, which are so nonsensical and so obviously sort of cut and shut and moved about if the sort of the perfectly adequate short horror adventure film which preceded them sort of gets completely derailed by quite how jarring they are does it make people feel that the film they saw before was less comprehensible than it was in some way you know i had a look at some reviews i've sort of seen the plot called incoherent or even incomprehensible and to me, that's silly because it's, it's a very that, straightforward it's a, plot. But it has such straight lines and it's quite brisk. Some of the character work isn't very good. But it has lots of one scene subplots, which is often an indication of getting to where you need to go by the most direct route possible. But the idea that it's sort of gibberish, that to me is so odd. And I keep coming back to the fact that it has this kind of cliffhanger ending that then has nothing to do with those midpoint scenes. And it's just, is that handbrake turned too much? I mean, the film's overall shape is that Iron Man shape isn't it the origin story where the hero is a reflection of the villain who's a reflection of the hero you know which is old and we know was arguably old by the Norton Hulk film but the idea that that's something that's difficult to get a hold on is just so odd because it's so straightforward and so familiar you know, if anything, the angry review should be saying this is structurally rote, not this is impossible to understand. <laughs> well, I think that's exactly part of its problem is that, I mean, I've said on here before that Sony should either decide what they want to do or just sign the characters back over to Marvel that they own the rights to because they seem to want to create their own little universe and have it as their own thing, but have it tied into the MCU at the same time. And you can't do both. And that's where those post 
post-credit scenes cause confusion. But I think as well, there's a whole issue about the fact that the release history of this is insane. I first saw a trailer for it, I think December 2019, around the time I saw the initial Black Widow teaser. And then what kept happening was, every time cinemas reopened during the pandemic, every time, you know, there's that brief window in lockdown that you could go and see a film, it would have the Morbius trailer indicating it was coming soon. And the thing is, there are lots of bits in that trailer that don't appear in the finished films that they were clearly, while they were trying to decide what to do to tie Venom Let There Be Carnage in with Spider-Man No Way Home and how they were going to tackle that, they're obviously cutting and reshooting this all along the way. Well, I think it's actually simpler than it looks because I found a blog a film blog Uprox where the director did an interview because the guy that interviewed him had been very positive about the director's previous small films so he kind of knew that it wasn't going to be demolition and so there's some quite good bits buried in that interview which give you a sort of I think they give you a feel for maybe where it was going the interviewer asked that says Keaton's in the trailers but then in the movie he doesn't show up until the post credit scenes and it seems like some things were reworked and the director says it was more that when Spider-Man came out we said we know how this works and we have a visual concept of how to make this now but the idea of having different timelines was something that was for me introduced into the movie universe within Into the Spider-Verse the interviewer says there are scenes of Michael Keaton in the trailer that aren't in the movie so that's why I was wondering if some things had to be reworked to match with No Way Home and he says yeah exactly the first thing that happened was we had Michael Keaton because we were planning on doing this but then when Spider-Man No Way Home came out it said this is how the visual effects are and then the idea of having him just encountering him in the universe seemed too complicated so we just put it at the end okay so you cut some things to make it match up with No Way Home is that accurate Yes, because we have to match. I didn't know how the transportation would look, the crack in the sky thing. That wasn't done. That didn't exist. So there were these small things that had to be addressed. This is what I think happened. If you see the trailer, there's a scene in which Morbius walks past some Spider-Man graffiti over which somebody has scrawled the word murderer. I actually think you can pinpoint the point in the film where that shot should fit, which I haven't unfortunately written down the timestamp for, but it's when Morbius has just escaped from prison. Also in the trailer, the scene with Michael Keaton is Morbius is being taken into prison and the vulture is being taken out of prison. And he says, hey, Doc, maybe you and I should keep in contact. And Morbius ignores him. So what I think happened is I think that the people who were making Morbius thought they were making a film that was set in the MCU, because I think that they thought that No Way Home would reconcile the Sony Spider-Man films into the MCU. And it would make sense if that film is taking place in the MCU, Adrian Toomes is being let out of prison in the middle of the film, having completed the sentence he was given in Spider-Man Homecoming. And then at the end, the two characters meet because he has suggested that they meet. So the material with Toomes that's the first mid-credit scene should come in the middle of the film and only the second mid-credit scene should be towards the end of the film. Now, I think the dialogue in the second mid-credit scene is new because it's entirely ADR over not Michael Keaton but over a CGI vulture suit and I think that's how they fix it but I think that makes sense because if that film is set in the MCU and it takes place when people believe Spider-Man is a murderer but before the world forgets Peter Parker then that does fit but once the film has finished once Spider-Man No Way Home has finished and the world has forgotten Peter Parker Adrian Toomes no longer has a reason not to hate Spider-Man because the reason Adrian Toomes doesn't hate Spider-Man is because he knows he's Peter Parker and Peter Parker saved his life that would all tie in with the fact that this has been changed 
change now, but originally the Venom movies were supposed to actually take place adjacent to the MCU in that the idea was that they were in Tom Holland's Spider-Man orbit because, you know, obviously they've been a yes. different Venom in the Sony movies yep. and that down the line he might appear in a smaller capacity in the Sony movies and obviously they've had to change that. But I would argue that, you know, they've had one film to work on over three years. If you compare it to the way the entire MCU had stuff backed up that was ready for release, they have had to change round. Spider-Man No Way Home, an entire character was taken out of that because yeah. of the way things have moved round. Her debut yeah. came later. They made yeah. a lot of changes to Moon Knight, things like that, Eternals. People carping about some of the rush CGI aside. That all makes sense. That all worked. And somehow they haven't quite got Morbius into where it maybe should be. I would also compare it to there's a Red Sonja film in production at the moment and the whole business about the rights to Red Sonja outside the comics is so complicated that it's not even worth going into it now. Apparently it was just assumed that they'd just do it on their own terms. And it's been reported that they have gone to Marvel and said, how can we make this so it links with the MCU? Not that it's a part of it, but, you know, we can have some of your action and vice versa. And yet I cannot figure out what Sony are actually, not even what they're playing at, what they're doing to begin with. What they want. Nobody's going to have a Morbius lunchbox, are they? <laughs> Michael. When you're can you control it? I don't know. Half the city wants to kill you. We haven't had anything this good since that thing in San Francisco. The other half wants to control you. Hey, uh, Dr. Mike, you and I should stay in touch. I'd do anything to save a life. But I don't know what I'm capable of. You save lives, you don't take them. Are you here to heal the world? Or to destroy it? Who the hell are you, man? I am Venom. I'm just kidding. It's Dr. Michael Morbius at your service. But it's interesting. I've forgotten that the Venom films were originally considered to be implicitly in the MCU, but you know, down a corridor and turn left. But then Spider-Man No Way Home and Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness both so categorically established that they are parallel universes that you need to work around that. And going by what those of the director of Morbius said, they do seem to have not been really kept in the loop about what was in No Way Home, even though it was normally being made by the same studio as them. With that stuff, I think basically they were trying to do a thing that they later realised, not just because films had been moved, but just because the objective of the film, that that film was set round the corner in the MCU, became impossible because those other films explicitly made these things parallel universes. So suddenly you have to have Adrian Toomes jumping universes rather than... They are events on a different scale, shall we say. And that whole business about the fact that Adrian Toomes has essentially jumped ship from the main MCU into the Sony spy, that's still can't get used to them calling it 
Spider-Verse because there's been the film into the Spider-Verse yeah. so it doesn't quite add up but that then creates a kind of what are they going to do thing because Morbius is very very closely linked to a lot of well I say established but you know will be established soon in some cases MCU characters because this isn't the first time that there have been attempts to bring Morbius to the screen because there was originally a scene shot I think intended as a post-credit scene for the first Blade film with the director playing Morbius and that point Marvel said no you're not using him in this franchise yeah, Stephen Norrington wasn't it yeah. yes it was Stephen Norrington yeah there was talk in about 2000 about a Morbius movie that never took off I'm fairly certain that the cancelled Adventure into Fear anthology series that eventually evolved into Hellstrom surely given that he was one of the stars of the original Adventure into Fear comic along with Man-Thing and Werewolf by Night and they were all now showing up with the MCU Morbius yeah. must have been considered for that and so you know you've got this character that's really associated with all of them and with Blade and with Spider-Man yeah. so where do they move from here obviously they're trying to set up some kind of anti-hero team up thing but it would make more sense to have him integrated with say Blade for example I suspect as I said that seems to me to be perhaps where they were going and now they're kind of like actually no we're in a different universe we've been deliberately kind of made separate I actually wrote down what Vulture says the ADR lines in that second mid credit scene yes because I was going to say a lot of criticism I mean those post credit scenes deserve criticism but a lot of them are saying why would they team up to fight Spider-Man and that's they not what not they say. say that no yeah what Vulture says is thanks for meeting me Doc I've been reading about you not sure how I got here has to do with Spider-Man I think I'm still figuring this place out but I think a bunch of guys like us should team up we could do some good that doesn't imply let's team up and fight Spider-Man it acknowledges the existence of Spider-Man I suppose if you have this Spider-Man universe that consists of these sort of anti-heroes like Morbius and like the Eddie Brock Venomous played by Tom Hardy maybe a version of the Sinister Six that are sort of more like the Thunderbolts or something is the less Sinister Six (laughs) (laughs) the Dexter Six maybe that's kind of where they were going with it rather than maybe we're just kind of assuming that they want to be the Sinister Six because they were so clear that that was a film they wanted to make five years ago I do think incidentally it would be really really good if Andrew Garfield could turn out to be the Spider-Man of the Venom and Morbius universe yes because he was the absolute star of No Way Home he really such a great actor he really is ridiculously good actor he suffered from poor characterization in his two spider-man films but i think he really really shone in no way home because they kind of addressed the fact that he'd been you know a bit of a an angsty dreamer and Badly had a so. kind of i've moved on i've grown up and he it really worked i mean those two mark webb spider-man films the amazing spider-man films i think the first one is quite good but completely pointless in the, you know it's sort of five or six years after the raimi film and it, it is different enough from it to be a different film but also it just is completely it's just totally unnecessary you know it's a spider-man origin film with a different cast five years after a massively successful and beloved spider-man origin film and i remember going to see it and thinking that was quite good but what was the point of that whereas the second one kind of has a point in existing but is an absolute train wreck and that to me that's the very weird thing about them is the, the one that's quite good and has no point and the one that has a point <laughs> and is absolutely dreadful you know it's that thing isn't it? you know what was good was not original and what was original was not good and yeah given how good he is in No Way Home and his you know his clear willingness to come back I think it would be quite good to have that slightly sadder Spider-Man be the version of Spider-Man that exists in this more horror inflected universe I have to say I absolutely love 
Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness. I think it's one of the crown jewels of the MCU. It's the rainiest Raimi film that Sam Raimi ever Raimied. Yeah. I do think, like, I do remember first day being, like, the only person in the cinema who laughed when Strange says, I didn't say they had to be living. And you realise that you've had, like, a Chekhov's corpse, the Doctor Strange and the pre-credit in the 616 universe since the beginning of the film. And I remember roaring with laughter and, you know, in a completely silent cinema of people who obviously thought this was quite a serious moment and maybe thought that I wasn't enjoying the film rather than that I was enjoying the film probably more than any of them. Things that I like in Morbius itself, you know, I said earlier, you know, I think it's really nicely photographed by Oliver Wood, who did all the Bourne films and Face Off, and knows how to make it look nice. I like the near black and white colour scheme. I also think there are some sections that are really nicely edited, where there are kind of like these overlapping scenes where sort of cause and effect get a little bit muddled, but you know exactly what's going on. So like you see him sending the Mayday from the ship, and that's overlaid with him realising the consequences of the Mayday that he's just sent and leaving the ship. And that sort of saves screen time, but is completely coherent. Or reading his medical log over his deteriorating condition over a montage of stuff that happens before, during and after him recording that log, but which enables you to see rather than just hear what he's going through. I think that's really good. That's really well done. I like the score. That sort of like throbbing low-level score. I like the closing and opening titles with the kind of pink and purple Vs and the wireframe boxes and all that sort of thing. I think those things look good and work nicely. As I said, I, I like the fact that it kind of belts along. I think that's very effective. You know, there's not really any fat on it. Bad things in it. I think some of the stuff with the children, I think it's tonally wrong. It's a thing I dislike in films, even in horror films, where things are kind of sad without being poignant. There's a sort of unpleasantness that comes with sadness that is never affecting. You just kind of go, ooh, you know? In the same way that when Emil is killed, the fact that he's kind of killed for trying to help, he's killed for kindness. It's a horror movie thing, but you don't feel that it's ironic or terrifying in some way. You just kind of think it's a little bit unpleasant. I don't think those bits work at all, along with how, you know, I mean, Smith is brilliant. But the Milo character is really sort of two different characters and the pivot from the kind of blood brother who clearly, I mean, I really believe their male friendship, their slightly yes, absolutely. male friendship. And the pivot from that to wanting to fight him just doesn't work. When Morbius says, Milo, this isn't you, it's just pure lampshading. You know, they've realised that it's not working and they just think if they say it, it'll be fine. But, you know, there's like those lovely bits like when Emil says to Milo, how is your pain today? on a scale of 1 to 10, and he says 11, which is a Doctor Who joke, but also it's not about his physical pain, it's the fact that he's worried about Morbius, because that's when the ship has just gone missing. That's good. Even when he's first transformed, he kills the news vendor because he's insulted Michael, and yet then he decides he wants to kill him himself because he won't join him. That character doesn't add up, but Smith is so good that he almost gets there. You know, like, you can tell when Milo is faking not being able to walk, which is kind of amazing. And his death is quite poignant, even though that poignancy is completely unearned just because of how Smith plays it. That, to me, that's really impressive on Smith's part. And the sort of the near saving of that aspect of the film by sheer acting ability is kind of amazing. I mean, it's not like Matt Smith has a history of not being given the greatest material in the world to work with and somehow rising above it. <laughs> I like I like most Matt Smith Doctor Who episodes, I have to say. I think it's a generally a pretty good period Doctor Who. Other things? that I don't like. I think it's a bad idea to kill Martine and then have her implicitly resurrected at the end. 
I know that's the comic mistake, but it doesn't really fly, I don't think, ironically. I really like Adria Arjano. I think she's good. I really like her delivery of when she's asked by the FBI, how are you feeling? And she says, like I'm in the hospital eating really crappy jello, which is not a great joke by any means, but she delivers it with a sort of resentment that sort of underplays and I just think is really, really funny. It's also weird when Morbius mentions Dracula to her and she says that she thinks Dracula was quite the romantic because this is like the least sexy vampire film you will ever see. You know, given sort of how much people kind of feed the eroticism into vampire stories, it's just none of that, none of that at all. But it sort of feels like it's written to have that and then it doesn't. I also don't understand why Jared Leto's Morbius moves between Dave Grohl and Jay Rayner. It's very strange. <laughs> the very strange thing. It's like I don't think it's necessarily bad. He also he weirdly seems to be trying to play Dr. Michael Morbius, the living vampire, as the centered and relatable guy at the middle of this madness, which is quite an odd way to go around playing, but you know, Dr. Michael Morbius, the living vampire. Again, it's the director was asked about the idea that Leto was so committed to playing Morbius that even when he had to go to the bathroom, he would go on his crutches and limp to get there and that this was slowing filming down. And the director was asked if this was true, and he said yes because that's Jared's processes and that what Jared believes is the pain, blah, blah, blah. He's a method actor. If this is true, I would like to know how, and I have timestamped this, at 18 minutes and 57 seconds into the film, Morbius visibly gestures to one side with his cane, thereby putting all of his weight on the leg that can't support it. <laughs> I mean, that sounds very petty, but I wouldn't bring it up if it wasn't being done by an actor who sort of went on about this stuff. And of course, that's the worst thing we can say about Jared Leto at the moment. <laughs> With regards to Leto, I literally don't know what you're referring to, so I don't even need plausible deniability. I just don't know what's going on. <laughs> okay, well, normally at the end of these kind of multiversal excursions, I pick a cast member who was in whatever it is and an MCU property and say who was best out of the characters, but there's absolutely no crossover at all. So I'm going to have to ask kind of another question by proxy. Obviously, Matt Smith is Milo in Morbius. In the MCU, we had David Tennant as Kilgrave in Jessica Jones and Christopher Eccleston, everyone's forgotten this, as Malekith in Thor The Dark World. So out of those three, who's the best? I think Tennant is brilliant as the Purple Man because he just plays, he plays him exactly the same as the Tenth Doctor but he's an arsehole. I mean, and that's really interesting because it's almost the same performance, but there's nothing comforting or charming about that performance, even though the character is being charming and affecting, being comforting. It's absolutely, it's like that thing Donald Pleasance used to do where he'd just step a millimetre to one side of his avuncular performance and become a monster using all the same tits. Smith is also great. I think as with their Doctor Who's, I'm a little bit going, actually, they're both amazing. I don't want to choose. I do have to say, Chris Ferguson lives around the corner from me and it's quite often quite often is unfair I have seen him on more than one occasion in the pub near the tube station that I used to go to and generally people in there are kind of randomly going up to him and telling him like how much they liked his Macbeth and stuff and just the desire one night when I had more than a few to go up and say how much I enjoyed him in Thor the Dark World was almost overwhelming but fortunately was not was not overwhelming and as a few days later he held open the gate for ages so that i could get my pushchair with my son in through it it was like that was my reward for not needlessly antagonizing chris ferguson for cheap laughs was a few days later i needed his help okay well we'll see what happens when they finally cast jodie whittaker as evelyn necker when they do death's head james <laughs> thank you and excelsior excelsior 
if you've enjoyed this, don't forget you can find more editions of It's Good to Accept It Sucks and plenty more besides, including details of my book Can't Help Thinking About Me at timworthington.org.